Romans 5, we're going to look at the, the latter part of verse 2 today. And when you look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, it's like a gold miner back in 1849 who struck it rich. There's so much here that we can mine from each phrase and word. And we're spending a little extra time here in Romans 5. And uh, I, I have benefited greatly from it, and I hope that you will as well as we continue to uh, reflect on what Paul is saying here. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Well, Romans uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 are describing for us the results or implications of being justified by faith in Christ. When a person puts his or her faith in Christ, then they have first peace with God. Humans are naturally at enmity with God. We are at odds with God. We're born that way because of our sin nature. And Jesus came to reconcile people to God so that they are no longer enemies of God. Believers are declared righteous by Christ's righteousness being credited to them. And therefore, God has no more reason to be at odds with believers. He has no more reason to be enemies of those who have put their faith in Christ. There's peace. There's fellowship. The relationship has been restored. The second result of justification that Paul has given to us here in Romans 5 is access and standing before God. You see that there at the beginning of verse 2. God welcomes believers into his presence, into his family even. He is graciously or favorably disposed to them because their sins have been forgiven and Christ's righteousness has been credited to them. There's no more reason for God to banish them from his presence as he did Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. So we have access, fellowship with God. We can come with confidence before God and, and know that he will receive us and hear us and, and be close to us. Now today we come to the third result of justification uh, or what it means to be, de or being declared right before God through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 
And it's this phrase we see here at the end of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now it's just a, a very simple half of a sentence, probably less than half of the sentence, but it's packed full of wonderful truths. And there's more here than meets the eye. So we're going to break down what Paul means by we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. First of all, by looking at some of the important words he uses. We're going to look at the word rejoice, the word hope, and the word glory and what those mean here. And then we're going to draw at the end a couple of applications, though there's many more applications that we can make from this little short half of a sentence. Well, first, Paul says, we rejoice. Now, the word that is translated rejoice here is not the usual word that is used for rejoice in the Bible. It's actually not a strong enough word. If you read any of the commentaries, they all say the same thing. The word here is actually the word for boasting. They didn't translate it boasting because most, most of the time when you see this particular word in the New Testament, it refers to bragging, uh, self-boasting, and it's you know, sinful self-boasting. But here, Paul is not pointing to himself or to anyone else. He's saying we, we boast in something else. We're boasting, we're bragging about the hope that we have. So that word rejoice is not used here in the negative sense like it is in much of Scripture. But the justified can now boast in the hope that they have. And that's a great thing. They can congratulate themselves on their hope. They live with confidence, joy, and thanksgiving because of the hope that they have. You think of professional athletes sometimes can be very arrogant if they're at the top of their game and they may boast about how great they are. That's sinful self-boasting. But they're self-confident. Uh, they, they feel like they're going to win. Well, that's our confidence. It's not in ourselves. It's in God and, and what he's promised. And we have confidence. We have joy. Uh, we live lives of thanksgiving if we're believers because of the hope that we have. And that brings us to the second word, hope. It's a very important word here. What is it that the believer is boasting in? In hope. Now often when we use the word hope, we, when we use it in our daily lives, we use it in the sense of wishful thinking. For example, we, we hope for a promotion at work. We hope for the gift I want for my birthday. We hope for a phone call from that person that I admire. We, we might hope that it doesn't rain today. I hope I can lose 20 pounds. None of these things is certain. There are things that I'm hoping will happen. They may happen. They may not happen. And that's the way we usually use the word hope, but that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. When the Bible speaks of the Christian's hope, it does not mean wishful thinking. Christian hope is not uncertain, like our ordinary everyday hopes about the weather or our health. 
It's a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. God has promised something in the future. We're looking at it, and it is secure. And we don't have it yet, but we know we're going to get it, and that is our hope. That is, that is our hope, what we're looking at. What's true and secure, but not ours yet. The writer of Hebrews speaks of hope in chapter 6. He explains that God made promises, and he backs those promises up with an oath because he wanted to show us the unchangeable character of his promise and purpose. God can't lie. So when God makes a promise, that should be good enough. But what God did with Abraham specifically was not only did he promise Abraham some things that come to us as well by faith, he not only promised God some things, but he also backed that promise up with an oath. Two things he did. He promised and he made an oath, and God can't lie. He did that to, 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 make certain, to make it certain to us that what he promised was true. He wants us to be confident in what he has promised. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to keep that certain hope in our mind's eye and hold fast to the hope set before us. He states, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now as we think about an anchor, you know, we live at the beach here and we see boats all around us. If you're out there in the, in the gulf and you don't have an anchor and you're trying to fish in one spot, you're not going to have much luck because you're going to go all over the place. You're going to just go wherever the wind takes you. An anchor is secure. It holds you. That's what the writer is talking about. My grandfather was a welder at Ingalls, and after he retired, my other grandfather owned a fishing business in Pascagoula, and my welding grandfather would go over and weld anchors for the boats that we had, big anchors that were, you know, as big as I am. And uh, those would hold the ship in place when they would be fishing in a spot. Very important. Hope for the Christian is an anchor. It holds its certain and it holds us firm. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So Paul says the justified, they rejoice, they boast in, they have confidence and joy and gratitude in the hope that they have, the certain future secured for them by God. The hope of believers gives confidence, security, something in the future to which they look with joy and expectancy. Believers make their boast in their hope, not in the here and now, but in what's coming. What is their hope? What is the hope of the believer? That brings us to the third word, glory, specifically the glory of God. So we think about this, especially now that we get into this third word that we're looking at. I want you to think about what is your hope in? Are we, do we boast? Do we find confidence in what God has promised us ultimately? the ultimate end of our existence. That's our, that's our hope, to be, to, to, to be with the glory of God, to be in God's presence forever and see his glory. Because that's what this third word is talking about. Paul says the justified boast and hope of the glory of God. Now the glory of God is his divine and heavenly radiance, his loftiness and majesty that will be fully displayed in the end, 
This is what the Christian has to expect, to see the glory of God fully and completely. Some call it the beatific vision. And we see examples in Scripture of people who got a glimpse of it. I cannot describe for you what this is like, to be beholding God's glory, what that, what that would be like in any sense of the word. I can only point you to people who have encountered it and their responses. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says we can't even bring it into our minds what the glory of God is like. We, we are too frail and human to even comprehend it. We can't even imagine it. Our, our greatest imagination will fall short of God's glory and what's he, what he's prepared for us. But there are times, as I've mentioned, where individuals caught a glimpse of the glory. Think of Moses when God revealed his glory to, to him as he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. His response was to bow down and worship God. Peter, James, and John saw the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did they want to do? Lord, let's build a couple of houses here and just stay right here. They were enjoying seeing Christ in all of his glory. Stephen, first martyr, he saw the glory of God right before he was stoned to death and was able to endure the pain of stoning and ultimate death and, as he was being stoned to death, forgive his enemies because he beheld God's glory in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul himself beheld God's glory. When he was on the road to Emmaus, he, he was struck down by God's glory and it completely changed his life in one moment he was going to kill Christians and in the next moment he became one of them and became the greatest early proponent of the church that was living we see these examples but we also see ourselves a little of God's glory revealed to us in creation the Bible tells us Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The problem is, we're sinners, and we, we look around us, and we might admire the beauty of God's creation, and as we contemplate God's creating it all and, and uh, the, the depth of knowledge that he must possess to bring all this into existence, and we kind of get a sense that he's glorious. But, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we now see in a mirror dimly. But then, one day, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, Paul said, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the glory we see is like looking in a mirror. Now, the mirrors we have today, there's one in the back there as you walk out. They're really good mirrors. You can see 
an exact reflection, but I don't think the mirrors in Paul's day were quite like our mirrors today. You've seen maybe old movies, old westerns where there's a mirror and it's kind of hazy and gray and you look into it and it's not a perfect reflection. That's what Paul's talking about here. We look around at creation, it's not a perfect perfect, uh, revealing of God's glory. It's dim, it's hard to make out. We can make some of it out, but not fully. But one day, we will not just be looking at a clear reflection. One day, we will see God face to face. We will see him exactly as he is. One day, we will stand in his presence and see the glory of God and Christ without a veil. No longer a pale reflection in a mirror face to face. Now, another aspect of this truth is that not only will believers see the glory of God, but but they themselves will be glorified in his presence. When Christ returns, the bodies of believers will be transformed into a glorified body like he has. Those who have already died, whose souls are with the Father in heaven, their bodies and souls will be reunited. And all believers will physically live with God in the new heavens and new earth, face to face, beholding his glory. The earth will be renewed. The earth will have the curse upon it lifted. And it will be all that God created it to be. There, glorified believers will live in the presence of God, beholding his glory. That is the future certainty that the believer has and that he or she boasts in, in which he or she has joyful confidence. That's where we're headed. That's the end of all things, to be with God in his presence, glorified in a new heavens and new earth. That's where all this is going. Now, a couple of applications. First, the Christian's hope, this hope that we have, future hope that we have creates a new perspective on suffering. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we begin to behold God's glory and grasp it just a little bit on this side after becoming believers, well, that's starting a process of being transformed. We're, the, the transformation that's going to take place is not just reserved for when Christ returns. If you put your faith in Christ today, that process is beginning. That's the process of th- sanctification. He's renewing us into the image of Christ. And one day, even our bodies will be transformed. But the renewal starts now. And that's why Paul says in the next verse in Romans 5, verse 3, you know, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also can rejoice in our sufferings. That seems odd that you can rejoice in your sufferings. But he explains, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
See, Christians can rejoice even in the midst of trials and difficulties in life because God is using their trials to build them up into the image of Christ. He's using these trials as a part of the process of renewing us, which one day we will fully enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. Christians rejoice because they are starting to see the renewal that will one day be complete when Christ returns. The hope we boast in is not something that we are only waiting on to happen in the future. The process starts at regeneration and justification. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's our future glory. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's what really matters. Not the things of this world that are transient, that are temporary, but the future world. Uh, that's what we're living for. That's where we're headed. That's going to be eternal. So as we go through this world, as believers who encounter suffering, we can be assured that God is preparing us for that future life, for that future world. So we can, we can rejoice in suffering. Seems counterintuitive. Seems like it doesn't make any sense at all. But as we keep that perspective on our future hope, we can go through suffering and realize, yes, the Lord is using this for my good and his glory. And all will make sense one day. See, having that perspective, that eternal perspective on things, changes how we endure in suffering. Now, secondly, the Christian hope not only creates a new perspective on suffering, it also creates a new perspective on sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection, which guarantees this renewal, these new bodies. We will, we will be raised like Christ was raised. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, our, our hope is much grander than just a, a good life here. You know, what are we pursuing in our lives? What, what are we living for? Is it just to live in this life and accumulate as much money as, as possible? Is it, is it to, you know, like the bumper sticker says, the, the one with the most toys at the end wins? Uh, you know, to just accumulate material possessions? Is that what we're all about? Is our life only about achieving a place where we can be completely independent and do and live like we want? I want to be completely free. Is that all we're living for? See, when we think about eternity and the Christian hope, it changes our priorities. Have you ever come to that place in your life where those material things or people's opinions of you no longer mean anything to you? The only thing that matters is what the Lord wants you to do no matter how difficult or dangerous. You look at these examples, a couple of examples here of people. The Apostle Paul, first of all. 
Paul in Philippians 3 talks about his former life before he was a Christian. And he had lots of great credentials. You know, he had achieved great things in his life. He was one of the leaders in Israel, one of the great teachers in Israel. He had a Ph.D. in Old Testament, if we would put it into the modern equivalent. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, see, and to know him face to face one day, and the power of his resurrection, to be renewed and to be with him forever, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul threw his old life away, and he says it wasn't really a sacrifice. I mean, all the effort that he had made to achieve the things, that was nothing compared to knowing Christ and, and looking forward and living towards that one day when he would be resurrected and be with Christ forever. You think about the disciples. The disciples, when they were first called by Jesus, they were fishermen. And Jesus says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and their boats at the shore. And they went and followed Jesus. I don't think at that point they knew what they were getting into. They couldn't have had a, a true understanding of who Jesus really was and, and the nature of his mission. They, they struggled with the fact that he kept predicting that he was going to die, and they said, no, you're not going to die, you're the Messiah. So they didn't really understand it the first time. But you know, they, they did it again. After Christ rose, they went fishing. They were out fishing again. They went back to their old life, and Christ comes to them there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he calls them again, and again, they leave their nets, they leave their boats, and they follow Christ. Where do they follow him to? They go to Jerusalem. They go to be his witnesses. They go to lay down their lives for Christ and his kingdom. And I think like Paul, it wasn't a sacrifice because they were gaining something greater. Paul called the, the trials of this world light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now, if you look at Apostle Paul, you know he was left for dead a few times, he was stoned, he was in prison, he was shipwrecked, and the list goes on. And he calls those things light and momentary trouble compared to the eternal weight of glory, to be there in God's presence forever. You see, when you grasp that, that, that our ultimate end is secure and it is beyond our imagination so wonderful, I can sacrifice in this world for Christ. I can give up pursuing the things that the world says I should pursue because I'm gaining so much, something so much greater, something way far beyond even our imagination. Are you living today in light of the hope of the glory of God? 
Are you contemplating the ultimate end of things? And have you ever said, Lord, how can I live for you now? What would you have me to do now as I prepare for that day when you will make all things new? Now all this comes to us by faith in Christ. Now, faith in Christ is more than mere intellectual assent. You know, there's a difference between believing a report about a person and trusting that person. You know, I can hear about Jesus and I can say, yes, historically I believe that he lived and that he was crucified and I, I can even believe that he rose from the dead. I can believe those things in my mind. But true faith is... A, yes, believing those things, but putting your life in his hands, trusting him. Actually saying, I trust you. I trust you as a person. I trust you as my God. I trust you as my Lord, and I give my life to you. You tell me what you would have me to do. Instead of us trying to use God to get a better life here. He's got something far greater in the future. What, what we do here as far as Christ's kingdom is concerned, is all that really matters. Accumulating wealth or whatever. Now, those aren't necessarily bad things. God calls some people to accumulate wealth. Do you share it? Do you give it? Are you generous? The gifts that you have, are you using them for the Lord and his kingdom? That's the questions that are changed by getting a grip on the hope that we have in Christ. And if you don't know Christ today then all you have is this world. And that's a desperate place to be in, a hopeless place to be in. So I want to encourage everyone today, if you don't know Christ, call upon him. Put your trust in him. Trust him as a person. Put your life in his hands. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again, as always, for your word. Thank you for these wonderful promises that we have. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have secured for us by sacrificing yourself on our behalf. Thank you for the great love that you've shown to us. And, Lord, we pray that these things would cause us to live a life that endures through the trials and trust you completely with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.